Welcome everybody to NFTs in the Arena. Today we have a very special guest all the way sitting in Singapore. We have an award, award-winning entrepreneur, marketer and investor, Prantik Masumdar. Welcome, sir. How are you? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Mikey. Thanks so much. And hello to everyone listening. No, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this one because I think your expertise, your experience and your, your passion for tech marketing as well as sports is obviously going to come through in this interview. It's something that I want to explore. So just a bit of a background for our audience, for those, for those that don't know who you are. So obviously you're an entrepreneur and an venture investor. And you act, I've done some of my research, where you act as a, a, a digital transformation catalyst for organizations to help them um, essentially achieve sustainable change and impact. And I also know something that really drew me to, to your profile and really wanted to have you on as a guest is the fact that you had started the company Happy Markets back, back in 2011 and obviously grew that company over over a decade to a multi-million dollar company and eventually exiting that company where you were acquired by the American company Merkel. So having said that, uh, I first want to thank you again for your time and uh, I do have a lot of personal questions that we need to get through. But the first thing I want to ask you, Pratik, is obviously being an entrepreneur and being very involved in the tech scene and being involved in businesses, particularly in a country outside of the United States. How did you come up with Happy Markets and what is the intention and what is your vision for that company when you had started out right at the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, I must mention at the outset so that that the original founder of Happy Marketer is a uh, very dear and close friend of mine from college called Rachit. And so, you know, what Rachit and I basically, when we sort of went down this path, I think we just had a simple vision of two things. Uh, a, how do we make marketers happy? That's why the name Happy Marketer, because we started just after the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. And, you know, uh, as many of you would appreciate that when markets go down and perhaps we are in another similar recessionary cycle right now, apart from travel and entertainment, the very first budget that gets cut typically is marketing budget. And we wanted to explore that. Why is it that, you know, something else doesn't get cut, but marketers budget gets cut, cuts and, you know, and there's also some sort of uh, pressure on marketers to sort of deliver. So that was one of the questions that sort of really bothered us. And we wanted to figure out how do we make marketers uh, happy? And the second point, which links to the first one, is how do you sort of make marketers happy? And I think one of the things we found out in our research is, you know, marketing for the last 50, 60, 70 years was more of a art than science. And what that really meant is, you know, there wasn't much accountability. Uh, people didn't really know that, okay, if I spent a million dollars on marketing and advertising, how much returns are we going to get? And hence, if you don't uh, measure uh, you know, what matters, you start sort of questioning the accountability. You don't know what that $1 million can bring to the table. And hence, when things get a bit difficult, you start cutting that budget. So Rachid and I being a computer science and computer engineering graduates, we said, we'll try and bring the science and the data elements of marketing into the picture so that marketers can at least go back to their companies and say, hey, look, you gave me a million dollars out of which $800,000 really worked. Here is what the return on the investment is. By the way, $200,000 didn't really work out that well. So at least whether it's success or failure, using data, tech, analytics, and science, you 
become more accountable, you become more effective and efficient. So, you know, long story short, that was the genesis of Happy Marketers. How do we make marketers happy? By giving them the tools and the processes of being more effective, efficient, and accountable. Uh, and I totally agree is that I do believe that in the past and also the advent of um, social media, which allow people to track marketing spend, definitely changed the game. And I think you obviously leveraged that at the right time. I think in 2012 is when Instagram started making some waves in the social media world. So, and you've also worked with some very reputable brands and organizations. Now I'm going to focus more on the sports ones because obviously sports finder, we are an NIL provider helping athletes essentially monetize their NIL through, through non-digital assets and non-tangible assets. But what you are talking about now by adding these metrics is tangible data, right? Improving to these organizations where their money is going and how effective it is. So having worked with the likes of ESPN, Starbucks, and even Top Golf, something that I, I'm an avid user of, tell me, take me through that experience and how did you actually garner and secure these big brands and what value did you actually add to them? Yeah, so, you know, these are big brands. These are global brands. We are based out of Asia. So I think most of our work started from Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, uh, and, you know, this part of the world. And I think, you know, uh, all of these businesses have offices or, you know, representation in this part of the world. And these are massive American, North American brands who have done so well. So I think the question really started, you know, when we had this conversation with them is what's the right way for them to expand into this part of the world? How do they make them their products and services localized and relevant? Because, you know, one of the things in marketing or digital for that matter, I think a, a principle that is different from how marketing was done back in the day was you back in the day, you first build the product and then marketing is a afterthought. But in today's world or in the digital era, you know, marketing has to be core to the product itself. Which means right. if you are, for example, ESPN or if you are, you know, any sports OTT platform, your product in itself has to be scalable. It should have virality features. It should have referral codes built in so that the product in itself can market itself or the viewers, um, you know, find it quite easy to sort of spread the word. Because at the end of the day, what is marketing? Marketing is really connecting your brand or your product with the right audience. And you ideally, in the ideal form, I still believe, whether it's digital or not, to me, the ideal form of marketing is word of mouth. If a happy customer goes out there and says, hey, guess what? Here's Top Golf, and no, I love spending my Friday evenings there. Uh, a, that's organic, that's cost-effective, and that's real, that's authentic, all right? Uh, so our, our conversation began with the brand, the brand values, but most importantly, how do you make it relevant for Asia? And how do you sort of bring the elements of digital marketing within the product. So that's how the conversation started, Mikey. No, I think, I think that's good. And it's, it's, it's actually going to take our conversation to the direction that I wanted to. And speaking about, you obviously have a lot of insights and expertise in sports tech venture, right? And understanding the, the multi-sports, multi-language video content, which is obviously incredibly important now. The World Cup is currently going on in Qatar. It just started today. The, the content that's coming out of that is obviously going to be probably supersede any other World Cup with regards to the various channels, social media being used and uptick amongst this kind of um, niche um, population, which is, a, a, I say niche, but it's obviously the most popular sport in the world. So I wanted to get your understanding. You, you obviously worked in, uh, with companies in the sports tech industry. You've also had an involvement in sports NFTs. 
talking about marketing around NFT, something that we at Sports Partner have noticed is specifically that the success of the NFT collection for a particular asset will very much rest on that, that, that athlete and how they communicate and educate their audience, which is something that obviously I think um, entities like Sports Finder and the Lions would have struggled and actually garnered strategy around that to essentially equip these, athlete, these athletes to go out and sell their product to their audience who are essentially the people that would be buying them. Can you take me around your thought process of when you, you've worked with NFTs in the sports industry and some um, scenarios that you had encountered that you actually had to apply a different chain of thought than what you would have done in the past? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I think any such new concept like NFT, I think uh, there are two ways of approaching it. One is it one is, is that it says, oh, it's a, it's, it's a new thing and it's a new, you know, shiny tool. Let's sort of go try it out. The other is to sort of just take a step back and say, hey, uh, let's try and understand this and let's try and analyze the why. Why do I need NFTs? Why are NFTs potentially valuable? And let me sort of illustrate this through an example of a NFT initiative that we did in Asia uh, across Middle East and India for cricket. In fact, for women's sport, women's cricket, right? And the context is, you know, uh, cricket is obviously becoming a very, very valuable, very, uh, you know, sort of a popular sport. You know, originally it was only a sport followed by uh, the British and the Commonwealth countries, you know, maybe just 10, 12, 15 countries. But today, thanks to a shorter version, which is more entertaining, thanks to women picking it up, uh, thanks to a lot of effort from the central governing body called the ICC, you know, today cricket is played and followed in right from Brazil to China to Japan to Thailand. And it's no more just Commonwealth countries and it's not just men. But uh, one of the biggest challenges is that the women's game uh, does not have that much money, right? So we had two objectives. We said, how do we ensure that the women athletes who are doing so well anyway, how do we ensure that A, they have a direct connection with their fan base? B, how can we give them tools to monetize their skills and assets? Uh, you know, because compared to the men, the fees that they make, the, the, the traditional brand advertising fees that they make is paltry. So last year during Christmas, we said we went to the Indian women's team, you know, uh, one of the top three, top four teams in the world. And we said, hey, you know, what are some of the assets that you have? So, you know, as you would expect, uh, like with any sports person, they have their merchandise, their jerseys, their shirts, their tickets, the balls and the bats. And we said, let's do a initiative uh, which has uh, two layers, right? So one is a physical layer. That means we'll have a physical auctioning of your assets. The other is a added NFT layer. And uh, that was phenomenal. It was a very short pilot program last uh, Christmas. And what was amazing is to see that there were people willing to bid and pay a much, much higher price for the digital NFT than the physical asset. And it was a pilot program. My hypothesis was, no, you know, uh, a, a fan will sort of uh, bid much higher for the physical asset, but it turned out not to be true. It So it was very good to see that, you know, people were willing uh, to sort of buy uh, you know, some people bought the entire NFT, some people co-owned the NFT. And when we sort of dug in further, uh, I think one of the reasons was, of course, NFTs, you know, this is before the, the crypto sort of crash and the blockchain crash, NFTs were in vogue, I must mention that. But otherwise, I think, A, there was a sense of ownership. There was a sense of, uh, you know, very honestly, some people said, look, by owning a digital NFT, I could show off and, you know, show this around to my friends in the digital world. By having just a you know, a bat or a jersey, I might wear it, I might show it to my physical friends, but by having the digital NFT, he or she felt a sense of ownership, he or she felt social proof because, you know, they could share it on 
whatever channels that they like. And they also, the other good thing is the tradability of the asset. So that's to me the beautiful part of it, right? If I have any digital asset like an NFT, uh, like today the markets are down, but hey, mm-hmm. that's the beauty, right? Tomorrow, if you take a long-term view of three, five years, these assets could go up higher. So the tradability or the easy tradability of these assets is also what makes it very, very accessible and exciting for a lot of fans. So stepping back, you know, by doing this NFT exercise, two things happen. The women cricketers, they were able to connect directly with the fan base. There was no middle layer, right? It was a great chance for them to interact, for them to sort of share the story behind that digital asset and connect with the fan. Uh, They were able to monetize at a much higher value. And for the fan, you know, I think it was the ability to sort of same connect, but also have a tradable asset, which, you know, your typical physical uh, auditions make it difficult. Of course, if you have a physical asset, you can do auctions and all of that, but it's much harder because you don't have a marketplace. But in the NFT world, you're part of a digital marketplace and you could be sitting in Singapore and you could be in US or Brazil, wherever. Uh, but, you know, we could trade this and we could sort of uh, showcase what we own. So, that, so my, my perspective to brands or athletes or sporting bodies is absolutely, uh, you know, look, NFTs uh, have been around for a while. Uh, you know, there are some great use cases, but start with the why. Like, what is it that you're trying to solve for? Don't just do it for the sake of doing it. Yeah, as Tom and Sanek always says, right, start with the why and, um, and a person that I really follow closely. And it's interesting, interesting that you spoke about cricket and women's cricket. We had, um, had the opportunity to, uh, we were very close to um, running out a project with Fair Break International, which was an international women's tournament in Hong Kong. And for various reasons that didn't, um, didn't materialize, but we learned a lot from that. And also myself being a South African and growing up around cricket and understanding the dynamic of cricket. And I agree with you. I think the popularity around cricket, not only because of social media, especially because in the way in which they've altered the game to make it more attractive to audiences outside the general populace that would watch cricket. And I still think there's a huge opportunity for cricket around the world. And obviously countries like India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, obviously have grown up and it's part of their culture. And I do see it starting to shift even here in the United States. I see a lot of people playing cricket which is obviously incredibly um, interesting to see. So you you spoke about now NFTs and the utility behind NFTs. A lot of people actually, if you, you put your, if you understand the why and you actually realize what this, the utility behind this digital asset is, I think this is a task that individuals like ourselves have to actually take on now, is to explain that the value of the digital asset in which you are initially acquiring, the true utility comes after that, whether it's through a one-on-one meetings with that athlete or merchandise or signed memorabilia. But I also feel like the utilization and the utility and the actual mode of NFTs is going to change going into the future with regards to ticketing, season, season ticket holders and fan tokens. And we see brands like Nike getting into NFTs with regards to the metaverse. So obviously with NFTs taking a knock now, and I think a lot of it would be not only to what's happened over the last a few months of the macroeconomic climate, which naturally had a negative impact on the crypto market. Um, I'm sure you've been watching very closely the news in the crypto world the last two weeks with regards to FTX and Sam um, Bankman Free. So we recently did a, a cover and a podcast on it. How do you think, I have my own opinion on this, how do you think that this issue, which is obviously not the first, but that is one of the most significant 
where they're comparing it to Elizabeth Holmes to advise Theranos. Do you think this is going to have a negative or positive impact on the crypto market, which will naturally have an effect on NFTs? And what I'm referring to is the regulation around it. Yes, I think my opinion is, look, uh, there are two, three elements to it. I think uh, if I zoom out and look at it, I think, you know, every time there is a new innovation of this sort, uh, you know, you are bound to have mavericks trying to sort of experiment and trying to sort of exploit you know, any potential, you take it, you know, back in the day, gold coins to any other asset, you know, this is a cycle. Of course, it's very, very unfortunate, both the cases that you mentioned. I mean, personally, I'm more peeved at the Elizabeth Holmes case for various reasons. But if I look at the effect FTX, I think, you know, again, it's all alleged. Let, let, let the justice sort of take its own course. But from what we see and what we read in here, if all that is true, which looks to be true, I think it's a big disservice uh, you know, to the real, real companies and the real hardworking entrepreneurs or the folks who have been trying to, you know, make blockchain and crypto relevant. I think what it does is, you know, anything of this sort sort of creates chaos, creates undermines confidence in the whole confidence uh, in the whole concept, right? So I think for the next, in the short term, in the next one two years, especially with the macroeconomic situation sort of not in the best of its health, I do see this to be a volatile lull period for crypto. Uh, you know, people even questioning Web3 startups, Metaverse, etc. So you see a lot of things coming together. Facebook, which rebranded to Meta, you know, the stock has tanked drastically. Uh, Meta, Zuckerberg has mentioned that, you know, this is going to take the next decade. Uh, then the whole crypto thing starts crashing. And then you have these uh, FTX-like situations, which are, I mean, at the end of the day, fraudulent. And so to me, I guess the only, the positive that I take out of this, Mikey, is that, I'm hoping all of this leads because a lot of people, a lot of retail folks have lost their money. A lot yeah. of investors have lost faith and money. So I'm hoping this catalyzes and accelerates regulation in the space because no matter what the innovation is, you know, you always need a healthy balance of uh, innovation, risk, mavericks versus, you know, you need regulators to protect the interests of the common people. And I think, and I, and I, again, I don't know if this is the bottom of it. If you have found FTX, I dare say there could be a few others, right? Yeah. FTX is that large. They are invested in so many others. So this could be a beginning of a, a large investigation. Uh, but I would like to believe that, look, at that's one. So I am hoping that all these fraud issues are dealt with, with, with thorough, proper investigation. People are brought to task. That will sort of restore confidence. The other is you need good regulation. Uh, absolutely. Because, you know, any field that is not regulated uh, eventually poses massive risks. Uh, the third is to me, I think, you know, assuming all of this had not happened, I think the other thing that the crypto or the blockchain or the Web3 world still lacks, in my opinion, and maybe it's, it's sort of part of a journey. And it's a risk that I want to call out is what has happened or, you know, what the AR VR world has encountered over the last, you know, two decades. I, I, you know, I've been seeing different versions of AR and VR, uh, you know, right from big headgears to the Pokemon Go's, etc. But if you look at it, it's still not consumed at a mass level. You and I are not doing this in AR VR. We're still doing it in yeah. the physical environment. And I think one of the challenges, and I see that as a problem in the crypto world as well, is I don't think there are simple use cases. Uh, that's one. So today, I mean, for a common man or a common lady to sort of, you know, go and use crypto beyond just speculating as a trader, I don't see use cases, at least in our part of the world. Like, can I use crypto to get a better deal? Can I get crypto to get access to someone? Can I get crypto to make investing more 
you know, equitable and more sort of diversified and democratic? Not yet. So I think there are some great use cases. In fact, I'm a fundamental believer in blockchain, the underlying technology uh, to sort of, uh, you know, decentralize. In fact, that also is a challenge. You know, what the FTXs of the world have proven that it's a big question. Is crypto really decentralized? Doesn't look yeah. like it. And there was mm. a great debate between, you know, Jack from Twitter and uh, and the uh, Anderson Horowitz guys is, is all of this really decentralized? Because it looks like even in this case, the power was held by a few, right? And if that's the case, then the common man who really, and I think if we can decentralize certain things, there's a massive value for the common uh, man or the woman. So I think regulation, simple use cases, which, you know, become part of daily life, as well as uh, just ensuring that some of these things live up to the promise of the core promise of decentralization, that we don't have to rely on governments or central banks or, you know, the powerful mafia. I think if these three things can be proven, uh, it just restores confidence. And if that happens, I think, you know, the use cases, whether in sports, whether in other startups, uh, startup world, I think we'll start seeing that coming. So I'm still a long believer, but I think in the next two to three years, there's a lot of cleaning up that needs to happen. Yeah, and I think you touched on you touched on various facets of what um, I actually believe, and one of them is, or let's break it down into two, is the scrutiny which the industry is currently under now because of individuals like SDF, which does impact people like ourselves that are trying to pioneer an honest and almost an accessible um, technology that everyone can use and actually benefit from. And this does play a part in also um, uh, the impact on investor confidence, right, and industry confidence. Because I'm, I'm of the same opinion of you. There's so many use cases. You can use Uber, you can use Airbnb, where the laws essentially are always lagging two years behind the innovation, right? And I think initially, like Uber, like Airbnb, had made tons of money uh, whilst not being regulated. And once it does become regulated, they remain. But the costs in the, that we as customers experience is far, far higher now. And it's something that we would have to consider with gas fees, for example. And I'm also a firm believer that I think everything that the FTX had stood for goes against why they had probably initially created that organization. We're creating a, a blockchain that's decentralized. And I do think this is going to have additionally negative impact and positive impact in the future. But like you said, if you are in this, you are naive to think this is going to materialize over the next year. So I, I, I really like your point on that. So we obviously at Sportsfinder are looking at ways and unique ways in which we can work together with organizations. So particularly here in the United States, we're working very closely with the, the colleges in the in the sports uh, in the sports realm, so like UCLA, US, um, USC, a lot of the, the, the main organisations here, we are working with them and helping them and their athletes essentially monetize the NIO and uh, educate their audience because now we are in the, the generation Z where they know about NFTs. It's about this word of mouth which you spoke about. So I do know that there's a lot of um, athletes that have come out like. Uh, I think actually today, Cristiano Ronaldo came out with his NFT collection on Binance, which is also a very interesting figure in this whole FTX um, triangle, if you want to call it that. Do you do you see that um, NFTs in the sports world will move far beyond just the initial digital asset and fan tokens? How do you see sports? Because of my opinion, I think they are pioneering the web to space. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, you know, again, if you step back and if you look at the sports industry over the last century or so, there are broadly four, there have been four 
basic ways to monetize sports. You know, either you have gate ticket revenue or you have uh, broadcasting revenue or you have sponsorship or you have merchandise and memorabilia. To me, what's exciting is, you know, at the end of the day is I think the world of, uh, you know, Web3, Metaverse, NFTs, I think it opens the door to be creative, to allow all of us to be creative, uh, to solve for three, two or three things. One is, again, like I said, connecting the athletes or the, you know, sports uh, sort of stars directly with the fans. To me, there's a massive power in that. You know, we have seen with startups like Patreon, etc., where today you can sort of use it to sort of, you know, get customized videos, etc. So I think whether it's, like I said, the NFTs, a Web3, I think one fundamental principle for me is direct connection and engagement. It's not just connection. It's about engagement with the fan, right? And again, to me, you know, if you look at any sport, right, whether it's NBA, NFL, cricket, soccer, whatever, if, you know, the, the, if you put the athletes, you'll always have the Cristiano Ronaldo's on the top. To be honest, you know, they are that good and powerful that, you know, uh, they have all the options available to them for monetization. They are they are an institution yeah. by themselves. But to me, the power of the NFTs and all of these decentralized tools lies for the middle and the bottom, right? That means even if I may not be a great, maybe I'm just a college star, but, you know, uh, if I bring other facets of my personality beyond the game, it allows me to extend uh, my life cycle, my monetization life cycle. Because you see, the other thing about sports is your your sporting career is typically five years, ten years, you know, max to be at your peak in your in your twenties, essentially. What happens yeah. thereafter? I think these platforms allow these uh, sporting athletes or you know uh, celebrities in general to sort of use their peak time to create the brand which they can then monetize and milk over the next few decades, right? So I think that's to me, is the second power, is direct connection with the fans, direct engagement, and to build your brand persona. And, you know, as we have seen with various basketball players or cricket players or soccer players is over time, post-retirement or near-retirement, they bring other facets, right? They all get into some sort of music. They do endorsement of uh, with different kind of, uh, you know, apparel and shoes. They have their own shoes. So I think... What this will do is, especially for the middle to, you know, the bottom of the pyramid, it will give them opportunities to create their own assets, not necessarily limited to sport, but limited, you know, uh, to their brand persona, right? Uh, so to me, that's one power. The second is, I think, just the element, uh, you know, especially in the fourth bucket of memorabilia and, uh, you know, any merchandise, I think the authenticity to ensure, because I think there's a huge element of fraud in any sort of, you know, world of, luxury goods or memorabilia. I think where, uh, you know, technologies such as blockchain and NFTs can help is, again, authentication that this is an original piece and be the credibility of it. So I think those two elements to me are very, very exciting because the moment you create a marketplace and make assets tradable, uh, provided the marketplace is relevant and large enough, you there is uh, latent value in it, right? You're sort of holding this, not just to sort of keep it in your shelf, but to also sort of trade. Uh, and I think the more the trades, the more the value. Uh, so to me, I think, you know, for these elements of authenticity, direct connection, as well as the tradability, I think that becomes very exciting. The other thing is, you know, uh, when I talk about monetization, something that's very close to my heart, Mike, is micro-sponsorship. So I'll again use, you know, uh, maybe examples from Asia, because again, uh, in unlike the US, a lot of sports are underfunded. Uh, so I'll give you a real example, right? Maybe a year, two years ago, I saw a post of an Indian badminton, uh, 
you know, upcoming star. She must have been ranked number 10 in India, which, you know, which is great in a large billion plus people if you're ranked 10 in India, which is not bad, but yeah. it's heavily, heavily underfunded. And her post literally said, look, I'm looking for $10,000. Uh, you know what? I'm going to spend it in my rackets, my shoes. You know, she's given the breakdown. And it's a great post. It goes viral. It's emotive. It had 200,000 likes. But the question is, you know, wouldn't it have been better to have $200,000 than 200,000 likes? And then I started pondering about this. And the good thing is I'm sort of seeing a few new models emerge where uh, you and me as just individuals could directly micro fund the athlete. And there are various models. You could just give it as a donation saying, you know what, from my side, $10, or it could be a subscription from my side, $10 every month, or it could be a loan. Like I'm going to give you a 0% loan. Here's hundred dollars. Whenever you make it big, hopefully you'll, you know, uh, give it back to me and you can yeah, take that money for athletes. Or you could also own a piece of her career that, hey, here's hundred bucks. And you know what? There are organizations now creating a entity of for her career saying, you know what? Here is the value that $10,000 Prantik owns, uh, you know, maybe 1% by giving $100. And well, if it if she becomes big, you know, I own 1% of her career earnings, so to speak, right? And there's a bit of ownership beyond just the money. So I think these, again, NFT is a great start. But if I look at the next decade, to me, it's about just the decentralized, authenticated, tradable way of connecting fans and sports stars, whether in terms of investments, loans, or just purchasing memorabilia. To me, that's what I'm excited about because I think sports is such an interesting domain. You know, it's one of those last bastions of content that is exciting because it's you know yeah. uncertain. You know, have I, no I, idea who's going to win, right? I, I and totally uh, agree, man. I totally agree. so, so yes, you know, I think over the next decade, I think we'll have a lot of these these unfortunate, unregulated issues, fraudulent issues, etc. But I think I'm just waiting that you know, and the more the Nikes and the you know what you guys are doing and the larger institutions start taking this up. And as people see value, both not just monetary, but also emotional value, because, you know, sports is a domain. Most of us play or follow sports because of an emotional connection to our identity. So the more financial and emotional use cases we see, I, I suspect, uh, I reckon that, you know, we'll see this domain growing. Uh, 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 one, one last thing I would say to that is I'm a Manchester United fan and I, I literally cannot connect with the organization because of its owners. But the, talking about engaging with the fans and athletes have been allowed to connect, that's something that's been lacking on a, on a mass scale, and you all know that, for sure. So I, I know we, we, we are running out of time, and the one thing I just wanted to cover at the end is obviously you're a regular columnist, and you, you, you write for marketing magazines, you write for the Economic Times and Business Times. So what, what are the next things that you are working on, and... How do people connect with you if they want to connect with you from our audience? No, thank you. Absolutely. So, you know, to me, there are uh, sort of three areas that I'm working on. One is uh, sports tech. I think that's very close to my heart. Uh, and again, I use sports tech as a very broad term, but specifically anything to do with, I guess, three areas, you know, sports content, video content, long or short. Second is sports education. And the third is uh, the whole element of sports funding and micro sponsorship. So any sort of discussion or investment proposals there are great. The other is in the world of, uh, you know, early stage investments uh, and sports is one bucket. But I also look at anything that is around using technology uh, to bring about positive change, uh, you know, be it in terms of society, be it in terms of, uh, you know, financial and 
financial inclusion, be it in terms of any sort of creating technology for equitable access to opportunity. I think that's exciting for me. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, I'm uh, easily reachable via LinkedIn. So if you go to LinkedIn and just type my name, Prantik Mazumdar, uh, which I presume would be on the title or the show notes, yeah. uh, just drop me, a, <laughs> drop me a message. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. And thank you for your time. And for everyone watching and listening, um, please like and subscribe to our YouTube and to our social media channels. I'll put Prantik's uh, LinkedIn handle in the description of the video. I want to thank you again and really appreciate the time. Hope to have you on again. And just for our audience to know, in the coming weeks, we are doing a new collection with New Haven University, as well as we may be exploring some great opportunities with varsity sports, something we're really excited about. Thank you for, for your time, Pratik. I really appreciate it and hope to connect with you soon. Take care. Samia, thank you so much for having me. Have a great one. Of course. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. 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 <laughs>